The following material is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. You can find out more about the Institute's work by visiting www.ezrainstitute.ca. Joe is a difficult act to follow. Uh, just a brilliant job, Joe. And uh, placing our Christian witness uh, in a very broad scope. I'm sure you all appreciated that. Uh, my task is, in a sense, more simple. And it's to talk to you about the essential theological worldview that I think uh, we have to follow in our day and age. Uh, Neo-Marxism is the correct title. I use it myself. But I do believe that under Neo-Marxism and all the expressions of that is a radical spiritual paganism. And I was reading on the plane uh, a book about Hegel and the Hermetic tradition. And Hegel, who influenced Marx, of course, Marx uh, was deeply into pagan spirituality. So these great thinkers in the West, when you scratch the surface, you find out exactly what makes them tick. Well, uh, Rick the Pianist, was it? Where is he? Oh, he stepped up. Well, he... He was inspired to give you a um, a short message on Romans 1. And I want to draw your attention very simply to a hermeneutic that I've tried to develop on the basis of Romans 1.25. And I always say if you can count from 1 to 2, you can be a theologian, because uh, not only did I write a, write a book, 1 or 2, seeing a world of difference, but... The two worldviews that Paul identifies here can be described uh, with the terms oneism or twoism. And that's what I've been doing for a number of years now in books that I've written and so on. Uh, oneism, because the worship of nature includes everything. And if everything in nature is worthy of worship, as Paul says then it must be divine and it must essentially share the same nature. So oneism, then, is a category that joins all of nature together. And, of course, because of that, denies any real significance to distinction. And that's why we're living now in a world that is opposed to the binary. You say binary and in uh, Canada, in, in the States, they say binary, and so they don't understand what I'm saying, but <laughs> I still say binary. And uh, you'll notice it if you're doing any kind of cultural reading, the rejection of the binary and the proposition of a non-binary way of thinking. Obviously, in the area of sexuality, but really in many areas, people don't want to use the word evil anymore because they cannot quite bring themselves to making a binary distinction in the moral area. So when the Apostle Paul writes to Rome, it's amazing, he courageously says there are only two worldviews. Somebody said this today, might have been Rick himself, that uh, there are only two religions. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. So the Bible is wonderfully simple. And... Uh, when Paul says that, he means that you have the worldview worshipping nature and then the worldview that worships the creator of nature. And I call that twoism. And it's twoism because the creator is distinct from the creation. All the great theologians that Joe read today from Holland uh, never tire of affirming the creator-creature distinction. And so that's the biblical worldview. And twoism because there are two kinds of reality in existence. There's the reality of God, the creator, and then there's the reality of everything else, which is creation. So I use the term twoism for orthodox Christianity. And I want to look at uh, the theme that was given to me uh, let's see, pagan revival, worldview pagan revival in human sexuality, 
in that sense. I hope it will be simpler and more clear to understand what's happening in our world today via those two very simple terms. But I, I'm also aware that, that you as pastors are faced with a difficult situation today. Joe and I are encouraging you to take on worldview, but that means we're asking you to take on the whole stance of a clash, uh, an opposition between two systems. And so often I meet pastors who want to be so welcoming and kind and warm. How can we possibly adopt that kind of worldview? And yet the Apostle Paul says, if you don't, you've lost everything. Because he calls oneism the lie, and twoism, the truth. And so if you want to be our leader, as we're calling ourselves today, we have to lead by leading people into the truth. Now, it doesn't mean to say we should be obnoxious, but we do have to realize that the antithesis, which is a classic reform term, is essential to the biblical worldview. It's either oneism or twoism. I want to look at these two notions across two categories that are present in our world today, sexuality and spirituality. How is oneism being expressed through these two categories, and how should we as Christians express the Christian faith in those two areas? I think the reason why you pastors and Christian leaders are facing the even the problem of whether you should pick up the whole question of worldview is because the world has radically changed. I was telling a few people that I always get this in. I was at school with John Lennon, a good friend of mine. Taught him everything he knew. <laughs> and... Uh, we went to a public school, and the headmaster began every day with the prayer and Bible reading. We never thought anything of that. Of course, that's now from a totally different age. No longer does that happen in the UK. It doesn't happen in the States, and I don't think it happens here either. So we have seen a radical change in worldview, culturally speaking, in the West. It's as if the uh, covering of a touristic way of thinking, only in general, of course, but as if that's been pulled away and another kind of overview is being put, put in its place, a oneist view of existence. And I'm seeing that especially in these two areas of spirituality and sexuality. If a picture is worth a thousand words, the picture in the Huffington Post a few weeks ago of 20 Canadian policemen in dress uniform sitting on prayer stools in a Buddhist temple in deep meditative mode. These were officers from the Ontario Peel Regional Police Force. Anybody here from Ontario? You should be ashamed of yourself. And the deputy abbot, Bante Saranapla, observed with satisfaction. They were very nice and they liked it and they think it should be part of their daily practice. I wonder how you can give parking tickets out if you don't believe in the binary. It's a sort of a difficult way of approaching Western morals if you are now letting yourself slide into the non-binary Buddhist spirituality. But that's obviously a sociological problem. In uh, sexuality, we have barbaric Dionysian sex orgies in university campuses. This year... The sex week at Northwestern University features a Chicago-based dominatrix who will teach students various bondage disciplines, sadomasochistic practices. 
all in the name of education. The once Christian Oberlin College, during 35 years recently, promoted the sex night where both students and faculty showed up naked and engaged in lascivious debauchery. Oakland College, of course, was founded by two Presbyterian pastors. So, where on earth is this radical change coming from? Well, when I was in school with Lenin, it wasn't yet the 60s. And the 60s, of course, is that moment where things radically begin to change. It was a sexual revolution, but also a spiritual revolution. And... Uh, from the 60s on, we had the phenomenon of New Age mysticism. Now, never use New Age anymore. You'll just show yourself totally out of it. Has it disappeared? Well, no. New Age has gone mainstream. Because now people say, I'm spiritual but not religious. So, the so-called New Age has not disappeared it has actually become the dominant way that so many people think. But the 60s was known as a period of spiritual change. And interestingly, to give it some specificity, it was changed from a Western spiritual viewpoint to an Eastern spiritual viewpoint. I have two books that I'd like to suggest that you read. One by Colin Campbell in his book, The Easternization of the West, with endorsements from leading sociologists, arguing, quote, that a plausible case can be made for the claim that there is a process of Easternization currently occurring in the West, quite unlike anything previously experienced. This is sociologist who is not against this movement, by the way, but pretty uh, fair in his uh, research, quite unlike anything previously experienced. Another book, A Western Jewish Convert to Hinduism, by the name of Philip Goldberg, in his book, American Veda. Uh, Colin Campbell's book is 2007. This book is 2010 states this, large numbers of Americans have arrived at the worldview of Hinduism, reconfiguring a reconfiguration comparable, oh, this is interesting, a reconfiguration comparable in power to the great spiritual awakenings of the 18th century. Isn't that historically ironic? That what made the uh, northern countries of uh, America and doubtless Canada too, deeply Christian in those awakenings, now is being replaced by a different kind of spiritual awakening. And Goldberg introduced me to a Sanskrit term that I didn't know, even though I just produced the book one or two. The term Advaita. A-D-V-A-I-T-A. And to my surprise, this is a Sanskrit Hindu term meaning not to. Not to. So the West and North America is turning Eastern, and it's learning the truth about what that means, namely that there's no such thing as twoism, that everything is oneism. You only have to look at what we do now in the West. Newsweek is called um, America uh, Hindu. But uh, we practice Hindu yoga and Buddhist mindfulness. And we spend billions of dollars doing it. Don't be surprised if there's some kind of return on that investment. In particular, Mindfulness, of course, it reduces stress, which is wonderful, but at what a tremendous cost. The cost is stop thinking. Don't think about the issues of right and wrong. 
or good and evil. Just lose yourself in some sort of self-induced moment of lack of stress. And that, of course, becomes the solution to all our problems. You can see how this kind of thinking, then, is taking over the spirituality of the West. That's why non-binary is such an important word. You see, if in mindfulness you don't think about good and evil, then you are thinking in a non-binary fashion. Your spirituality is being built on a non-binary way of thinking. And people who do yoga say the same thing, that ultimately they see themselves as one with everything. So this kind of spirituality is gaining the day, and an associate professor of literature at the University of Colorado uh, describes this agenda. She questions how binary oppositions like male and female, right and wrong, true and false, structure the way we think and act in our world and how we have to get rid of that. So this is the goal, you see, to efface the very notion of right and wrong, good and evil, true and false, male and female. So the sexual agenda that you're watching with rapt interest as you discover almost every day a new form of sexual perversion is part of a fundamental ideological worldview of, we can only describe it as Eastern spirituality. That is taking over. The rejection of the binary, though, uh, is especially clear in sexuality, and I come then to the issue of sexuality in the West. What is happening there? Well, I've almost given myself away, but the destruction of the gender binary <laughs> has happened in our colleges, right? There's no such thing as male-female dorms anymore, just to begin with that simple notion. And then we cannot even... Uh, use male and female as a valid distinction about human beings. At Dartmouth College, their website says, Dartmouth seeks to provide a living environment welcoming to all gender identities, one not limited by the traditional gender binary. There you have it programmatically stated. A friend of Bill of... Uh, President Obama, Bill Ayers, and his wife Bernadette Dawn, who were two radical revolutionaries in the 60s, by the way, uh, actually got married, but on their wedding cake was the phrase smash monogamy. The destruction of the family, of course, uh, was going on quite uh, strongly there. So, I come then to what's happening in the area of sexual identity and homosexuality in particular as the expression of this spiritual change in our Western civilization. I think what I'm now about to say is a serious warning to Christians who want to be affirming of their homosexual friends and even describe them as gay Christians. There is a conference taking place next month, is it? Ju is, is July next month, I guess. <laughs> In New Orleans, called Revoice. Have anybody been picking up that Revoice conference? You should uh, Google that and find out what is happening. This is run by PCA pastors and even some professors from Covenant College, Covenant Seminary. And it's called Revoice, and it's an attempt to include uh, homosexuals into the church 
by arguing that orientation was not their fault, then they probably won't be able to change it. So we have to learn how to put a good face on that and bring them in. And I think there are real dangers there in the kind of terminology we use. If we simply try to make this so-called orientation uh, not that bad, because it does arrive from a deformation. And I wouldn't want to give that up. And the reason is this. I want to show you the relationship between homosexuality historically and pagan oneism. It, it's really quite startling to see how those two ideas are closely knit together in the history of the West and even before them. Professor J. Michael Clark, once a Christian who came out as a homosexual uh, in 1996, says this, being a gay man or lesbian entails far more than sexual behavior alone. It entails a whole mode of being in the world. That's an interesting statement, you see. That, that sexuality is not just uh, over here as a slight orientation, but actually determines everything you do. And he says... The problem lies not with mean-spirited or hateful Christians who are not loving to homosexuals. Rather, he understands that for gays, the problem is with the whole biblical worldview and theological paradigm. And so this man, a pure Western, turns to Indian animism and the American Indian Berdache who was a androgynous shaman in Indian cults in North America. He found the Indian homosexual shaman of pagan animism the model of his life and the lifestyle that he was adopting. We uh, Thus, note with consternation that homosexuality is promoted as part of Western civilization and human rights and supported by the notion of Christian love. But as the West converts to various forms of spiritual paganism, it's not surprising that the West also adopts various sexual expressions once characterized by the pagan world. And it is true that we are going deeply into paganism. I use the term paganism, and it sounds like it's offensive, but the meaning of pagan is the worship, or the pagan actually means that which is close. Alienus means that which is afar, and so paganus means that which is close, that which is nature, close to us. And so the worship of nature becomes a expression of paganism. And to show you how far we have come in this kind of paganism, and this is just a parenthesis, Jean Houston the brilliant spiritual woman who during the 90s in the White House was a spiritual advisor to First Lady Hillary Clinton. We came very close, by the way, in the elections to having a woman deeply engaged in pagan animism become president of the United States. Nobody knows that. But this is one of the issues that we need to know. Because... Jean Houston was helping her get spiritually in touch with Eleanor Roosevelt. Now, I don't know how you do that, apart from some kind of animistic, occultic techniques. And Houston observed in 1995, 
We are living in a state both of breakdown and breakthrough, a whole system transition requiring a new alignment that only myth can bring. And in that year, she wrote a significant book entitled The Passion of Isis and Osiris, A Gateway to Transcendent Love, calling on Westerners to discover the powers of the goddess Isis, the goddess of the underworld. So that's how far paganism got into our culture a little bit further south than you. But we fail to see this as we approach the issue of homosexuality. Many in the church uh, do not know the history of either paganism or homosexuality and so fall into the trap of uh, adopting it or condoning it or even introducing it into churches these days. Uh, the city church in San Francisco, which was a PCA church at some point, but moved to a more liberal denomination when they felt they had to ordain women, uh, a couple of years ago came to the position that they needed to introduce as members and even as elders homosexuals. And so... This kind of thinking is coming very close to us. Some of you know the name Richard Rohr, a Roman Catholic theologian who goes around the world and even in evangelical places, he taught at Fuller Seminary, for instance, teaching on contemplative non-dual, ah, here it is, non-dual spirituality. So you've got non-binary Non-dual is another way of describing this orientation. And he states, gay people get non-duality because it is in their DNA. So he sees, this man, sees the spirituality associated with homosexuality. I wonder what he is talking about. Homosexuality, actually, is a common trope in the history of paganism, as I suggested. J. Michael Clark, I mentioned, testifies to a state in which distinctions disappear and opposites are joined. See where the the non-binary comes in now sexually. Distinctions disappear and opposites are joined. That's his description of what it means to be a homosexual. And that, of course, is a classic expression of pagan spirituality. That's why, as I indicated, mindfulness meditation is an attempt, finally, to join the opposites of good and evil by relativizing them, by getting rid of them. So here is another case of that. And uh, you can go back in time to find homosexuality associated with this kind of spirituality. In 19th century B.C. Mesopotamia, androgynous priests were associated with the worship of the goddess Ishtar in the Sumerian age, 1800 B.C. Their condition, says the text, was due to their devotion to Ishtar, who herself had transformed their masculinity into femininity, and so they became androgynous. You know, androgynous means a mixing of male and female. I should say this as a parenthesis, too, that in homosexuality, there's a certain androgynous element because both males have to play some kind of role as the female. So you have androgyny in the mindset of a of a homosexual couple. But uh, this was essential in the spirituality of the worship of the goddess Ishtar. They functioned as occult shamans who released the sick from the power of the demons and uh, they engendered, engendered demonic abhorrence in others, a fearful respect This is not just one 
little piece of information. The religious scholar Mircea Eliade, I'll be speaking about him on Friday night uh, because uh, Jordan Peterson mentions him quite a bit, did some deep work on what he calls ritualized androgenization, where he discovered that androgyny was a spiritual characteristic in pagan cults. And he shows that androgynous or homosexual priests were everywhere in ancient Mesopotamia, Indo-European religions, as well as Australian Aborigines and African tribes, South American Indians and Pacific Islanders. All over the known world, we have this phenomenon. Eliade shows that in spite of being separated by many centuries, there is an evident historical and theological connection between Mesopotamian homosexual shamans and the Canaanite shamans or the Syrian shamans, homosexual, by the way. In North American tribes, as I indicated earlier, there were the Badachi. Among the Navajo, they were known as Nadle. Among the Zuni, as Awanawilona, the Hishi. Mercea believes that ultimately it is the wish to recover this lost unity, spiritual unity, that causes this uh, activity to take place. So the deeply religious importance of this sexual expression. And so you have, both through time and really across space, because the relationship between the jungles of Africa and uh, and India and whatnot uh, is across space, and you find the same phenomenon. It's interesting that if this is the case, this surely explains how the Old Testament knew of this spread of spirituality and warns against it for the orthodoxy of the people of God in the book of Leviticus. Not doing what the nations do. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you live, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan. Leviticus 18.3 and 20.23. This is not just uh, national or ceremonial, but it's a very clear understanding of what was going on in the nations around the time when the book was written. So by the eliminating of distinctions, you embody the worship of the many gods of paganism and the rejection of God the Creator. You see the same argumentation, I won't get into it, but simply in passing, in Romans 1, Rick, has he left again? Uh, where Paul talks about God the Creator and the rejection of God the Creator and then the worship of idols, where's the next thing he goes? In verse 26, he goes to homosexuality. The connection is straight and direct, and it's because in the ancient world that's what people knew to be the case. I did some reading in contemporary theories about homosexuality. And one of the writers that I read by the name of June Singer, a Jungian psychologist who actually wrote some uh, commentaries on the Gnostic texts, but she was also a psychologist. In her book, Androgyny, towards a new sexuality. She's writing this at the end of the 60s, right? 77. And she's basically saying that the age of Aquarius really is the age of androgyny, which 
obviously it's happened, right? <laughs> we saw the age of Aquarius coming and everyone getting spiritual, not religious. Now we're seeing everybody becoming androgynous, at least in their minds, they're quite sure that there's no problem with it. So she's writing just after the 60s, announcing the coming of a new spirituality, namely androgyny. She says, what lies in store as we move towards the long-for conjunction of the opposites, the conjunction of the opposites, that's precisely what paganism wants, you see. Paganism wants to get rid of all the opposites, God and nature, truth and falsehood, right and wrong, to get rid of guilt and to get rid of God himself. Towards the long-for conjunction of the opposites, when human beings can realize their own creative potential through building their own cosmology and supplying it with their own gods. Since the New Age, we have watched happen the development of a pagan cosmology. How to fit this way of thinking, not just in terms of spirituality, but a whole worldview has been being built on the basis of this. But she says something quite amazing. This is what Carl Jung and Eliade were prophesying as the new humanism. And it has to do also with the view of sexuality. And here's what she says. The archetype of androgyny appears in us as an innate sense of and witness to the primordial cosmic unity. You see that it's unity that has to be expressed. The unity of all things, no distinctions. That is, it is the sacrament of monism functioning to erase distinction, a sacrament. Androgyny is a sacrament, she says. In other words, this physical deformation has a deeply spiritual meaning to it. It's a sacrament of unity. It's a sacrament, actually, of getting rid of the distinction between God and the creation, the creator who made the distinction between males and females. And so this is the sacrament of powerful spirituality that she believes uh, is on the way up as the essence of the new humanism. I probably should move on. What time do I end? I didn't notice. Oh, okay. Um, I have a few paragraphs here on the way Christians, and I know this is useful for you folks since you're on the front lines, <laughs> how certain Christians have been dealing with this issue. And uh, they're evangelicals. I think if they knew this background, maybe they'd at least uh, show some hesitation. But for the moment, this is not the case. And uh, some evangelicals appeal to Jesus and his loving approach to people as the justification for bringing all sexual minorities, so to speak. That's one of the phrases, by the way, in the Revoice uh, conference. Sexual minority Christians. I'm quite friendly with Rosaria Butterfield, and uh, we correspond quite often by email, but she is completely in agreement with what I'm saying. And, and she says, the only identity we have is the male-female identity that God gave us in creation and has redeemed in grace at the cross. So all these other identities she's not willing to look at at all, and she's dead right. But some Christians are opening arms to these sexual minority Christians or gay Christians. And it's because Jesus told them, Glennon Doyle Melton, who made her name writing about families and motherhood, in 2016 married international female soccer star Abby Wambach. 
So she left her husband and her children. But this is what she says. Figuring out my stance on homosexuality felt like a life and death decision. I know my Jesus. I love him. And I think if he needed me to believe that homosexuality was just a sin, he would have mentioned it to me. So you can use Jesus, right? You can use the spirit. The well-known author Ken Wilson in his book, A Letter to My Congregation, evokes the leading of the spirit. Of course, he has actually played around with Ignatian spirituality or Jesuit spirituality. So I guess you can go anywhere with that kind of spirit. But many evangelicals read his book and are convinced by it. Obviously, the appeal to love is overwhelming. The Scottish Episcopal Church has rejected the sanctions imposed on it by the global Anglican communion, though that's going in the same direction. According to the principle, love means love. And uh, that love is called upon by so many people, including somebody, for instance, like Nicholas Walterstorff, one of uh, leading reform philosophers, professor of philosophy at Yale University. He says this, when those with homosexual orientation act on their desire in a loving, committed relationship, they are not, as far as I can see, violating the love commandment. So that's one of our great ethicists who makes an appeal to love. And that's what was used in that church I mentioned, the City Church of San Francisco. If we consider, they say, the life of Christ and his example of love, what is Christ-like? What is a Christ-like response? Well, what does it mean to love? I think this is where I get to my twoism part in terms of what it means to love. Because when you actually examine what the scriptures are saying, you have to begin with what Jesus says. When Jesus is asked what is the essence of uh, faith in scripture, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and all your mind, and then your neighbor is yourself. But you have to put the love of God first. And what does it mean to put the love of God first? I think it means that we begin in action to be twoists in the way we think, even about such issues of affection and sentimentality. And uh, we understand that God's love is primordial. And that we must love God first before we start loving anything else. And we love God because he's first, actually. He's abounding in steadfast love. He precedes us as the loving creator. Long before there was any neighbor to love, God was expressing perfect love in himself. And he does so as being our father. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? And as a loving creator, he reveals himself as a caring father. We love God as well because he is Trinity. And in that sense, embodies twoism. Now, I know I'm getting you confused. I've got two and three. But Trinity as an essential expression of difference in unity, which is what I'm trying to say twoism is. Distinction and unity. And that's what we have in the Trinity. And I hope you don't go too loose on the Trinity. It's an absolutely essential doctrine in our time. It's an essential doctrine over against Islam, and it's essential, it's an essential doctrine over against Eastern spirituality, which is so obviously impersonal. 
Because in the Trinity, God is the very source of personhood and the source of love. God doesn't need you to express love because he's already the fundamental expression of love in the being of the Trinity. So God can be both absolutely transcendent, that is distinct from us, and yet personal and loving in the being of the Trinity. You see that? So this is essential to the God of Scripture to be both transcendent, that is, not determined by the creation at all, he's the creator, and to be able at the same time to be personal in his love for the creature. And so that's why we honor God who created marriage. I believe that the uh, marital structure of one flesh unity reflects the Trinitarian being of God. I think, to me, this is the ultimate reason why we should defend the male-female marital structure. Because it reflects the Trinitarian being of God, and thus, as we are given God's image, we're called upon to live it out in terms of what it means for human beings to be dignified, have meaning, and this is the ultimate meaning. It seems to me that that's just not just an invention of my uh, poor thinking or trying to be clever, but in 1 Corinthians 11, 3, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul tells us that the marital relationship is a reflection of the Trinity. Remember what it says? Just as the husband is the loving head of his wife in the God-honoring marriage, so God the Father is the head of Christ. You see that? God is the head of Christ is reflected in the male-female relationship. And God as the head of Christ is part of the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, this comes out, actually, in the revelation of who God is as Redeemer, as Creator, as the, as the God of the Trinity. We see the male-female relationship is absolutely crucial, and that's how we reflect our sense of who we are and how we love God. That mystery is also shown in God as the Redeemer. In the ancient text of Genesis 2.24, Paul cites this text, as you know, in Ephesians 5.32. He cites Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his wife and cling, leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and they should become one flesh. And you remember what he says, this is a mystery. Now it's interesting that Paul sees his call as an apostle to bring to life for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for all ages in God who created all things. So Paul knows that his calling is to unveil the mystery of who God the creator is. And it's clearly then the mystery that God instituting the male-female marriage is reflecting God as the lover of his creation. Long before the sort of fulfillment of it in Christ loving the church even, it's God as the creator and eventual redeemer uh, prophesied in Genesis 2.24. This is how it can be said of God already in the Old Testament. Just as a husband loves his wife, and as a bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so shall your God rejoice in you. You should all note that text. It's Isaiah 62, 5. It's a crucial text in showing the relationship between the male-female marriage and the being of God himself. So, I'm going to bring this to a close a culture and a church that has eliminated God 
the loving creator and has cut itself off from true love will fail to reflect who the true God is and will give in to the sexual perversions of our time. The unique message given to the church is what we must offer to a lost world. We love our neighbor by passionately preaching the great cosmic love story of the creator. Told different, totally different from us, but in unbelievable condescension dying on the cross for the sins of his creation. And so the worldview that I'm proposing, which uh, certainly goes fully in the direction of what Joe was saying this morning, which is the worldview of truism, love of God who is separate from us, takes on the worldview of paganism, which is the love of created things, and the love of not making any distinctions of any kind, and thus reflects ultimately in its sexuality the many different kinds of gods of paganism. So only the male-female relationship can reflect the God of Scripture. And in that sense, we maintain in our living the kind of worldview uh, truth that we believe in in our minds and souls. So let me encourage you all to be strong in maintaining that position in your churches. The gospel depends upon it, by the way. It really does. Uh, we're not just talking about, you know, wouldn't it be nice to save marriage? Wouldn't it be nice to save the gospel? Which is symbolized by this very love of God for his creature. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Feel free to share the material with friends, but do not charge for or alter it in any way without the written consent of the EICC. Thanks again.